You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Robin is one of the first bird species to hatch, to, to lay eggs and then hatch them out. And their eggs are notoriously blue. What can they teach us? One of the major causes of decrease in songbirds, particularly, is pesticides and pesticides use. So it, it's kind of a double point. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. I'm I'm excited, Ange. I'm becoming a big bird nerd. I really am. Awesome. Yay. Welcome to yeah. the club. I'm I'm more of a wannabe bird nerd. Uh, but yes, it, there is always time to start birding and enjoying and learning about just the fascinating, beautiful, multicolor, multi-sizes of uh, birds in your own backyard, right? It's something no matter what country you live in, you can usually look up in the sky or on the landscape somewhere and be able to identify a bird species. And it's a really fun pastime. And a lot of us are spending more time at home right now or in our own backyard. Exactly. So there yeah, is no yeah, yeah. better time than the present to get into learning more about the birds in your neighborhood, what they do, how they behave. And it is a busy time for birds as well because a lot of uh, fledglings are moving all about and getting on the ground and learning how to fly. So yes, I, uh, I'm excited today to be talking all about robins. I know, I know. I So I have been wanting to do these for like I know I've been bugging you for the last three months because every morning on my walks in California, I would see and hear this bird singing on top of this tree every morning. And this mm -hmm. is March, you know, going into April during, you know, the lockdown. And I just was like, okay, I had to go identify. So I ran into the house and identified it as a spotted towhee. And it's just like this cutest bird, but he was persistent every single day. So I've been bugging you to do a songbird because I want to learn more about them and then share that knowledge with everybody. And so this is our, actually our first songbird that we get to do together. And we're doing robins. Yes. And I know you're going to cover more the North American one because there are, we're doing a two for one special. I'm, I'm kind of going to talk about the European one too, because that thing is so dang adorable. It's so cute. Yes, but what I learned right off the cuff with this podcast, and we'll talk a lot more about it when we get to the different species of robins and evolution, but American robins and European robins and all the other several robin species that you're going to talk about today right. from multiple different countries, they're yeah. not really closely related. And so mm -hmm. robin's kind of a catch-all term, and it, it definitely means different things to different peop people depending on which region you're from. So. For me, here in the United States, the robin is one of the first bird species to hatch, to, to lay eggs and then hatch them out. And their eggs are notoriously blue. 
So Mm -hmm. as a child growing up in Michigan, I'd I'd always have fun collecting the bright blue shells. And we'll talk about on the podcast why their eggshells are blue. So stay tuned for that. That'll be a fun one. I I did that deep dive this week. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So for, yeah, it's a really like nice feeling when you start seeing robins, when you live in the North, uh, seeing robins, hearing them. It's like, yay, we've made it through the winter. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure how it feels for other people in different parts of the country, but you'll have to uh, write in and tell us about what robins mean to you. Oh, yeah. there. I mean, yeah, there's a ton of them in, in North America, and we'll get to that. But yeah, there's also the Japanese robin, the Cape robin, dash chat, but that's down in Africa. The Ryukuyu robin. So yeah, there's more. But I just focused a little bit, jumping between the European robin and the American robin. And we'll talk a little bit about the differences. But you're right, they, they are not that closely related. And we'll talk about that when I get to evolution, which, I'm, oh my God, I'm excited to share about that too. Because there's some amazing, amazing facts about songbird evolution. It's going to blow you away. It, yeah. it will blow you away. I'm promising. I'm promising you. This is going to be a fun podcast for sure. Right. So before we get going, I've got to dedicate this episode to a very close friend of mine who loves robins. And that is Louisa. She's one of my really good friends. I call her my earth angel. She's always looking out for me. So these are one of her her all-time favorite birds. So I had to dedicate an episode to her, but I do want to keep thanking our listeners and our supporters. You know, you've been reaching out on Instagram. You've had really good interaction on Facebook. I just every time I look, there's tons of questions and Angie's yes, on top. Yes, so. if you're if you're not already one of our uh, all creatures Facebook fans, come join us. And then we also have an all creatures group where there's a lot more interactions. We share fun conservation, animal-related, science-related stories with one another and photos sometimes. So that's a gr- definitely I'm having a lot of fun in that group and learning a lot more, which is what us science and animal dorks like to do. So yeah, for yeah, sure. Join yeah. us there. And I got to give a huge shout out to L Rank 123 who mm-hmm. gave us a wonderful review on iTunes. And I really appreciate her kind words. She says we're a wealth of knowledge. So Chris, we're doing a good job. We're faking it well. <laughs> um, but yeah, so thank you. Those kind words. First, they're really awesome to read. It helps Chris and I know we're on the right track and keep doing what we're doing with those staying up late and getting up early in the morning and doing all these all these things as our kind of like side hustle or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then also too, it really helps the more you review us with positive five-star reviews and or writing some things out that gets us more traction with iTunes and gets more exposure to listeners, which that's what Chris and I are all about education for free and helping people learn more about animals and how to best conserve them because that's what we need more of in the future. So, uh, we are at 199 ratings on iTunes. So nice. Why don't whoever's listening, mom, if you're there, Chris's mom, (laughs) if you're there, (laughs) uh, could you guys be the, yeah, somebody needs to be the 200. So be that 200 or maybe 205. So, uh, thank you everyone. Yeah. I can tell Mike Bona, he always like, Oh, you got to mention me in your podcast. And he always gets excited. I'm like, Oh, Mike, I dropped your name, you know, LA zoo, whatever. And, uh, yeah, I'm gonna tell Mike, you, you better have reviewed us or, or that's it, buddy. No more. Yeah. No more, no more, uh, yeah. I like it. A little, I'm going a little back pressure. to San Diego, you know, that's with, right. uh, 
yeah, Rick dropped in on our live the other day and I was wearing my LA zoo shirt. I was like, Oh Rick, I'm sorry. I know. I was going to say, Rick, if you're listening, Chris is wearing, Angie can see it. My yes. San Diego zoo safari park shirt while we record. So it's gorgeous. It's green. It's got a rhino on it. It's a yep. uh, classic. Yep, yep, love yep, it. Yep. Love it. Yep. <laughs> so anyways, thank you for your support. And Angie Robbins, I think the reason that's kind of a catch-all name for some of these these birds, even though they're different species, is they look kind of similar, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know you're going to describe the American robin, but that reddish-orange or orange chest is pretty common, I think, across a lot of these robin species. Definitely, yeah. And that's where why there's some of this interconnectedness with their names, even though they might be from different family groups, which we'll touch mm-hmm. on. But yeah, the the American robin is from the thrush family. And of course, they have that classic rust red-orange breast. But with the American robin, its head is anywhere from jet black to gray, and it has these cute white eye arcs. And I learned a new word today. It's called supercilia. And supercilium is plumage or feathers that basically are found on the heads of some birds that act as almost eyeshadow, if you will, or an eyebrow that kind of go around the eye itself, which that's a classic coloration pattern of these almost like white looking eyebrows of the American robin. And then the body is going to be black or brown uh, in color in general throughout its uh, wings. And yeah, the classic red orange breast and then some white mm-hmm. under, uh, I kept wanting to call it underpants, but they, <laughs> it's, I kept reading. I'm like, no, it's, no, it's, uh, it's not underpants. It's, but no, Chris, it's, it's like the under area or under plumage, under feathers, okay. if you will. So, yeah, it's just a striking bird. When you see them, you know you get, they're yeah. a fun one to identify right away mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. of that of that beautiful red orange chest. No, they are, and and just the American ones, they're they're definitely bigger than the European European ones. Uh, Eleven inches long or twenty three centimeters. A wingspan can go sixteen inches, you know, wide. Or 41 centimeters. Yeah, they're not a huge bird, but they're definitely mid-size. So that's, for me, it makes it eat, they're easier to identify because they're somewhat larger than a lot of the teeny tiny songbirds. But the other cool thing with American robins is the females also have this red, orange, rust-colored breast. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're often a little bit smaller than males, and they might be slightly paler in color, like they might not have such the pop of color mm-hmm. uh, that the males have, but they definitely are still look similar where a lot of the different songbirds and birds in general, uh, the males and females look strikingly different. So oh, yeah. uh, with the American Robins, overall, they look similar, both male and female. We are going to do Birds of Paradise next. I'm going to, well, I, I know there's a bird we, we've got coming that we have in the mix a very popular bird. But a couple, I know that, we have a couple of them actually. Oh, uh, we're doing a birds of paradise. We have to, we have to. Oh, every time I watch planet earth or anytime they go to Papua New Guinea and show those birds. Oh my goodness. It just, the males are just so flamboyant. It, it's yeah. just the best. Yeah. And that's typically, best. yeah. If think of the peacock, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot of times the way it goes in the bird business, bird but yeah, not, not Robins, not, not Robins. Robins. Mm-mm. Yeah, and the Europeans, I mean, they're they're similar, not really too similar, but they do have that orange-red 
chest, but it actually goes up over the beak and the face around the eyes. And they have like a light brown top line, a black bill, and about half the size of an American robin. So okay, uh, two very kind of similar, but not. Now, Angie, I was surprised. One of the things I was surprised was the range, especially the American robin. I mean, you're talking, their breeding goes all the way up to Alaska, like oh, on yeah. the tundra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. the way down to Mexico, like yes. mid down to, into Mexico. Yes. That's a crazy yes. range. It is. It's a very big range. And so yeah. that's why it's definitely going to touch home with a lot of our fellow listeners in North America. Because regardless of where you live, and even maybe down into the tip of Central America a little bit, you're probably familiar with robins. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, their range is huge. And, and depending on the subspecies, which we'll talk about shortly, uh, their breeding range versus their year-round range versus their wintering range mm-hmm. is going to differ a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Mm -hmm. in general, regardless of where you live, whether it's California, Florida, Maine, Alaska, uh, there's some time of year that you can be blessed with uh, hearing their beautiful songs and calls and also getting glimpses of them. I am definitely going to go bird watching and try to find a robin now. I am definitely on 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 the prowl. I need to get some binos. Well, stay tuned toward the end of the podcast. I have some really awesome Facebook groups you can join. Okay, okay, To get started, so yeah. (laughs) Jesse, Jesse down in New Zealand, are you listening? Just to see what you started with me. And then the European one, Angie, it's very interesting. Their summer range is up in Sweden and Russia and the Baltic states. And then their year-round range is most of Europe and Spain. And then their winter range can be down in North Africa, even like the uh, the Nile River Valley, which is wow. interesting. Okay. I will tell you in the UK, robins are like the most beloved birds. So Louisa, you know, you're listening. I know you love them in your backyard. They're well, they're like one of the most favorite birds. I think they're the 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 national bird of Great Britain. You're absolutely right. They are. That's why they love them so much. They they are the uh, the bird of the UK. So. Yes, and they're the love is shared across the pond, my friend, because mm-hmm. uh, robins are the state bird of Michigan. My stomping oh, grounds. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. Okay. Growing up, always trying to collect and look for the blue robin eggshells, mm-hmm. uh, but also they're uh, the state bird in Connecticut and Wisconsin as well. So okay. three states okay. love them a lot. They just and, all copied Michigan. Yeah, they're they like Michigan, Michigan is awesome. Uh, <laughs> One of our state mammals too is the wolverine, which I've actually been watching YouTube's about that lately. So we need to soon. Uh, if yeah. Angie lets us do it soon, because Angie is a Michigan State graduate and Michigan University of. Why Michigan are you whispering? It's not a secret, and it's not shameful, Chris. <laughs> go green, go white, go Michigan State Spartans all the way, forever and ever. I'm already grooming Xander and Zachary. That's. That's where they're going, unless they can <laughs> yeah, go right. to Harvard. Um, John's or... like, no, 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 no. Yeah, we're going to Harvard. I'm sorry. Zach, so, I know where our, our future uh, dinosaur expert is going. It's I know. MIT or Harvard. Yeah, so. yeah. So, uh, but no, but of course, the University of Michigan are the wolverines, but they're just a really cool animal. And there's been some neat yeah. sightings of wolverines uh, or a wolverine in uh, Oregon on a beach. Oh. So they think there might be like up to 20 in the state, but they're, they're, uh, oh. They're, they're really, I don't know if they're endangered or threatened or what their exact population mm-hmm. count is, but it's really uh, 
horrifically low. So, anyways, yeah. Um, back to Robbins. But, soon, uh, soon, yes. soon, soon. Yeah. All right, Angie, tell me this because I've got some some data to share with you. But I mean, why care about songbirds? That not just their music, because anybody that goes out and you actually listen in nature, because I think a lot of times we go on our walks and we just don't listen. We just are caught up in our head. And I challenge all of our listeners the next time you're out in nature, just try to shut your mind off and listen because these birds are so beautiful. You hear all the different calls and stuff, which I think benefits us, humanity. But how else do robins benefit the environment? Yeah, well, Chris, you're right on with how beautiful they are. And I've actually taken, I walk the dog a lot and I'll go for runs. And of course, half the time I'm either on the phone with my mom or my sister or one of my best friends uh, or you being like, okay, what are we going to do next? Mm -hmm. Or listening to a podcast or music, right? Music is wonderful if you have your favorite artists and bands and Mm -hmm. things like that. But I've been unplugging and not listening to anything. I did a, I did a, like a jog the other day, a little 5k mm-hmm. walk, trot, joggy type thing. I'm not a super fast runner, but, and I just listened to the nature sounds and it was mm-hmm. incredible. It was yeah. really meditative and I was able to not focus on the millions of things that are going in and out my brain all the time. So I, yeah, I did a little decluttering and I highly recommend you do that. And you can enjoy songbirds and start to Really be a bird nerd and be like, oh, there's a robin mm-hmm. or oh, there's a – we always hear the crows or the ravens or right, whatever right, it right. is. But songbirds or robins uh, in general play a really big role in the ecosystem. And first and foremost, we'll talk about it when we get to nutrition, but robins act as insect control. And so they have the ability to, depending on where they are located, to even help control insects that are damaging crops and gardens such as beetles Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. they can help clear some of those out which anybody who's tried to grow grow a garden know about those pesky beetles and other insects that will destroy your tomatoes faster than you can say tomato tomato so (laughs) yeah. yeah and so it's just a really important role that they play but robins also consume seeds and fruit and so they have the potential, too, to act as a seed bearer and help basically repopulate the different plants that they are consuming. So we talk a lot about this, on this podcast about seed dispersal and the important role that that plays in an ecosystem. And songbirds, depending on what their diet is, are also in that game. And especially robins, we'll talk about when we get to nutrition, we'll share with you some of the different fun fruits that they will consume mm-hmm. and seeds. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then this one, I don't love this one, uh, but they are part of an ecosystem, and mm-hmm. they are somewhere in the middle, more or less, if you will. So they they can act as an important prey item for some of our larger predators. Um, and that is, you know, they'll take out the older ones, the weaker ones, sometimes the younger ones. We'll talk about that in life cycle. But that is, that's part of nature, right? And so yeah, they, they yeah. fulfill that niche. And so And so when we think about the world without songbirds, which I think you're going to touch on here shortly, Mm -hmm. or with a lot less of them, it's not only hurting ourselves because they're beautiful to look at and uh, fun to listen to, Mm -hmm. and they also have this role in the ecosystem, and they also have this role of dispersing seeds and insect control, but the, the 
bigger animals, the foxes, the coyotes, the mm-hmm. snakes, things like that that eat them are going to be suffering as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're 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 critical and I got to go way back to it was actually October 1st of last year, so it was our episode 119 with the pileated woodpecker when we talked about this. And this is when the the study was just coming out mm-hmm. and making news. And that was this massive decline in birds in North America. And it is alarming. I mean, is it? Oh, can you? What? How the world's changed so much, Angie? And what? That's, that's seven, eight months ago. Eight months ago, right? Nine right. months ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God, how the world has changed? And, and the stuff that... I remember just being blown away by this study. And then we had the Australia, you know, wildfires and the loss of biodiversity there, which we still don't know the impacts of that. So anyways, I'm bringing it back. I'm I'm bringing this back, this study. It it didn't leave my consciousness. I remember it. And I dug a little bit deeper. And this was uh, Dr. Rosenberg and Associates at a Cornell. So the Cornell Department of Ornithology, right? Mm -hmm. That's the the bird one. Yeah, the big. Yeah, they're like like the biggest bird group nerds out on there. Earth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yes, a lot of this a lot of my podcast prep came from uh yes. mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember you you saying you wanted to go back and get a marine biology degree, which I still would love to do. God, I would love to maybe go back and get a degree in orth- ornithology cuz such amazing amazing animals. So the what the study basically concluded was bird populations in the last 50 years since 1970 going here 2020 have declined by almost 30%. And that equaled almost 3 billion less birds today in North America than 50 years ago. It's a huge, huge decline in in birds. It, it's insane. It's absolutely yeah, it's nuts. Unprecedented. It's unprecedented. Oh, it's, it's just crazy. So some of the breakdown that they had... So obviously, all North American species have decreased by 30%. Native species, that came to about 72%. And introduced species, which was good, I guess, because they're introduced, was down, gosh, 60%. So they're, they're less than 30 40% of what they were. So some of the, the other types of birds. Migratory species, they're down 30%. Land birds down about 25%. Shorebirds down six down to down 35%, right? So they're a little bit more. Uh, water birds for herons, egrets, gulls, they're only down about 15%. Aerial insectivores, this is, you know, some of what our songbirds were down about 70. They were down 30% or 70% of of what they normally were. So Across species, most were down uh, except one, and there's a reason for it, and I'm going to get to it at the end, but waterfowl, so geese, ducks, swans, those type of birds are actually way up almost 40, 50% the numbers for from 1970. Wow. So what's what's and, their and, magic secret? Because it's, well, okay, I'll get there. Well, okay. I'll get to the chase. For, I was gonna say I'll save it for the end. I'll save it for the okay. end. Okay. I gotta I gotta end on a positive because a lot of this stuff is not positive. Oh, you weren't <laughs> you done know? with the bad news yet? No, oh, no. So okay. yeah. So okay. So for about seven hundred million birds, and that's just across thirty-one species, and there's over ten thousand species of birds in the world. Mm-hmm. 
but just this, this study focused in on, but on some of the species they looked at for 700 million birds, their homes are gone. So the, the, the forests, the meadows, everything that they, they lived in and from Canada to the United States to Mexico, it's gone. It's become farms or urban development. Also, one of the major killers of birds, and I'm going to link this article in the show notes. It's a National Geographic and I actually have the other. I have the actual studies too that are out of science, which again, Angie and I always say science is one of the the better, one of the top scientific journals in the world. So one of the major causes of decrease in songbirds, particularly, is pesticides and pesticides use. So it, it's kind of a double whammy. So what happens is not only does it kill off insects that these birds eat, okay, so there's less food, which that's what a pesticide does. It's just trying to knock down insect populations so it doesn't destroy our crops so we can eat and use less land. I mean, it's just this whole complex very complex. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a po- its own podcast for Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 tough. But keep going, keep going. Let's see. Okay. So, not only does it do that, but it also has physical effects when the birds do eat or ingest some of these chemicals. So, it actually delays their migration, it delays body fat gain, it delays ways they can met- metabolize food, and it can kill them as well. So pesticides are, are the, the, one of the number one killers of songbirds in North America. So there was another study that came out, in, again, last year in 2019 on looking at specifically neonicotinoids. Neonics. Particularly, this, ha- yeah, neonics. Yeah. Is, easier, easier is, way to say it. Yeah, yeah. So what they... they concluded in this study is is one of the the causes like i said neonics in songbirds is they they don't store fat they have less body mass so when they are trying to migrate they they actually they 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 don't have the energy reserves to really migrate so a lot of them will die and also not reproduce so it and then i read they eat some of these seeds that have neonics on it and it just kills them outright especially some of the smaller songbirds so they said the population of more than 75% of songbirds that rely on, on agricult- agricultural habitat have s- significantly declined since 1966 because of the use of neonics and these other pesticides. And we know that's like a 30 to 40% decrease in songbird populations. So it's neonics are, and I'm going to get to it at the end of the podcast, but what I was reading on them is just last year, here in the United States at least, the government starting to regulate them more because one of the things is bees, honeybees, and neonics. And yeah, that's probably where they've received the most press is with right. the uh, yeah colony collapse and things like that. And it's it's uh, you and I both know as researchers, it's um, once again that's a whole different podcast like for a different mm-hmm. day. I, I recently actually did a small little talk about some of these topics with the bees uh, and, you know, there's studying insecticides and pesticides in general Mm. is a a real tricky business because like all research, it's hard to control all the variables and Mm. with insecticides and pesticides, it's all about toxicity, right? So Mm. the dose is the poison and 
and trying to do a fine balance. And neonics have been a class of insecticides that actually are able to selectively target some species of insects and not the others. And mm-hmm. that chemists and ag researchers are basically trying to come up with solutions for balancing all the risks and benefits of the different classes of drugs. And they're always studying them. And I think that's what a lot of people don't necessarily realize is there's, unfortunately, there's no simple answer. You, you, it, it's, it, it's complex. This is it's not very, easy. It's, it's, it's very complex because, uh, they're highly, highly, highly re- regulated. And yeah. so well, every year farmers are getting updates about, okay, don't use this, yeah. use this, uh, and and so and there's like yeah there's really strict regulations and so well I want to ask I you, think that I want to ask you something. oh yeah okay you're a farmer's daughter good old <laughs> Angie good old USA oh, yeah. farmer's daughter who is a hippie and likes to travel the world and save animals and <laughs> we love her to death but you are <laughs> you grew up less. on a farm right so you're, you're you that's have a where family, my roots are yeah, absolutely a family business you're feeding the world eat more blueberries everybody. It's it's a wholesome living, right? And you do care. And I know farmers care about the environment most. Most of them do. Most of them care about their farms. Oh, and where you yeah. Are. So talk yeah, about it's... just from your perspective, right? With like some of these pesticides and things. And Sure. Know, yeah. It's, I mean, it really is a different pod for a different day. But, but the fact is, is that people don't want food that has been invaded by insects. They don't want to find worms in their apples and they don't want to find chunks bitten out of their blueberries. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty common for family farms or farms in general to be sued if there is an insect or something in their food. And mm-hmm. that's where the USDA and the FDA. So farms are highly, highly, highly regulated by government entities, at least here in the, in the United States, I can mm-hmm. speak for. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, a ton of paperwork and a ton of training and a ton of inspections and a ton of regulations, which a lot of times poor farmers just like want to farm and drive the tractor. And mm-hmm. so it, those days are gone. Like now you have to, of course, abide by a lot of regulations. And so, um, and a lot, and that, so that has to do with uh, pesticides as well as it's not just a free for all and pesticides are really expensive. So farmers don't want to use them. And, and then, so it's this balance between like how little do we have to use, but also, so our crops aren't rejected mm-hmm. uh, from the buyers because people, especially here in the United States are pretty Picky. particular about yeah. pick. Yeah. How their food looks. And so, that's it's a really fine balance of of what we can use and there's a lot of regulation and a lot of training that goes into applying pesticides and things like that and how often you're limited on what classes you can use like neonics aren't even used for blueberries typically mm-hmm. um and how often you can spray them i mean it's a like i said it's a different pod for a okay. different day it's, yeah. it's really yeah it's really it's really but i mean it's really quite fascinating when i really and when when people will let me after a couple of glasses of wine when i really like start <laughs> going into educating it. them about yeah. like how it is and things yeah. like that and so it really is quite fascinating but so there's definitely different things you can do on your farm and there's really cool i know in michigan there's really there's special certifications to become an environmental steward mm-hmm. while you're farming and a lot of um a lot of farmers are wanting to do that because they know that 
the public is demanding that, right? And like vote kind of like, with your dollar. Vote with your dollar. You, you always, vote with your dollar. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I do think that there is um, finding this balance. And I also, as scientists, being trained as a scientist, you and I know that research, research, research is yeah. trying. That's what will help us strike the balance be, between nature and farming and all of that. So, I mean, it's a really... Yeah, it's, it's complex. It's, 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 <laughs> Chris is like, uh-oh, I shouldn't have opened this can of worms. I know, I did open fun. a can of worms. But it's true, though. And I just, you know, it's... I just keep going back to that 30% decrease in birds. And it, it's... That's not acceptable to me. No, it's not. and there are alternatives. I mean, I know where I live in Florida, there's alternatives. There's uh, You yeah. can use noise as yeah. a deterrent. Yeah. To keep birds away, so like, don't even let them come near, near your, your crops. Food. So this is good. Mm-hmm. It's just more research. So I agree with you there. I absolutely agree. Absolutely, with you there. Yeah. and then you know, and for bees, we're working with p- putting more wildflowers and uh, around away from the farms, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. they'll stay out of the farms and they'll go do their thing more yeah, in the woods. Out, yeah. When you farm, it's a great idea if you are starting to farm to keep more wood cover around instead mm-hmm. of doing these huge like. Open which areas, blueberries yeah. aren't grown this way in general, but these huge, you know, 100, 200, 300 acre plots, plots. Yeah, you know, that's like try to keep more trees around and do 10, 15, 30 acre plots. And there's, there's a lot of um, things that are being investigated as with organic sprays. Yeah. A friend of mine right now is in a, um, potentially in a trial in Michigan Good. looking at organic insecticides for yeah. some of these invasive species. Yep. Yep. So, all right, back there to Robbins. <laughs> We're off the farmer podcast. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, think it's, yeah. I think it's just you bring such a, a different perspective. So I just, I wanted to. Yeah, to I've definitely you. lived it. And yeah. I, I, see a lot, I see a lot of the sides, but I, I like to stick with data too. And I yeah. do know, speaking with my agricultural scientist and entomologist, that it is really hard to replicate a, um, a study with field conditions. Right. It is. It is. Because field conditions, you know, you got a lot of rain, you yeah. get a lot of wind. It's um so it's it's, it's tough. tough. Research but, is tough. It's definitely tough. Yeah. But well, uh, let me, we want we want to take care of our we yeah. want to take care of our songbirds. Right. And, and so let me show you how we protected our waterfowl. And okay. you know, as I promised earlier. So you know, they did find that waterfowl like went crazy increase, like I said, like 150% from from levels and you know who it was it was recreational water farmers no waterfowl hunters hunters yeah okay, okay. see so here we often go get a bad rap like farmers yes. exactly these these mm-hmm. recreational hunters they this, in the study it says put money where their mouths are and saw to conservation programs and policies were put in place to protect wetlands billions of dollars went in to protect wetlands in North America enacted in the late 1980s and that turned around and protected all of our waterfowl. I know in California all of our by our coastal areas our beaches are all protected. You know, there's all these areas where these waterfowl come in, you know, Canadian geese, all these things that come down to California, they they are protected. So, you know, there is a a group that said, "Hey, we need to protect these birds." And their populations have rebounded. So bravo to them, you know? Absolutely. And I think it's, I mean, I've always said that uh, some hunters, obviously not necessarily the trophy type hunters, Mm -hmm. but hunters in general are some of the original conservationists as well as farmers. I mean, we celebrate Earth Day once a year 
in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a farmer, every day is Earth Day. Yeah. Because yeah. if you don't take care of it, 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 it won't away. grow. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting thing. So yeah. maybe that's a different pod for a different uh, day. We'll cover it for something else. We'll bring it up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about evolution, Angie. This is an amazing just journey I took. And do you know how, okay, 10,000 bird species, what percentage of that is songbirds? Out of, we have 10,000 bird species across the planet. Ooh, um, I'll just go 33. How about 50%? Wow. Half of okay. all the birds on earth are songbirds. They're singing their songs. I love it. Over 5,000 species are songbirds. Out of all the birds, out of all of them. It's insane. It's insane. I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? All right. So we've talked about the earliest bird evolution. We go back to Xander's favorite dinosaur class, the theropods. So the theropods, Angie, now the ones that turned into birds wasn't T-Rex. It was smaller ones like... They, they said Velociraptor, you know, that like I read this thing, look at a bird evolution. The Velociraptor had a skull like a coyote, but a brain roughly the size of a pigeon. Well, <laughs> it's yeah, kind of stood I mean, six foot tall. You know. <laughs> Makes yeah. it scary, Jurassic Park. Anyways, so that's where birds come back. I don't have time I, I because we, we got on the whole farmer kick, but I did want to talk a little bit about it. Maybe the next time we do a bird, I'll, I'll go more into detail, but reading this stuff and really starting to understand it is how dinosaurs went from dinos to birds, very subtle, very slow, just random changes. There was really nothing driving them. It just, it started with, oh, this one just started to have feathers that gave them a little bit of an edge. And then this one, oh, the the bones started to get a little bit lighter. So it just gave them a little bit of an edge. And it just was all these little tiny evolutionary steps to where all of a sudden you had this bird emerging, you know, a uh, long time ago, 100, 100 million years ago. Archaeopetrics, I've said that one before. So that was their, yeah, their ancient, ancient the emphasis. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. like the origin going back, you know, over 100 million years ago. And then giving us our birds today. Okay. Covered that before. Just a quick recap. Songbirds. Angie, where did songbirds originate from? South America. Nope. Oh, hmm. Europe. It's a good guess. It's a good guess. No. Where did, I mean, we got to, I got to go back. North America. No. Did anything evolve out of South America? Because it seems I know everything migrated there. I got to look and see what Well, do we have a lot of giants there. And, They're uh, huge. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, okay. Africa. Nope. Asia. Nope. <laughs> what continents are left? <laughs> There's only two that I can count. Uh, Australia. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yes. That's awesome. I, I That's never the answer. No. So we're continuing Australia week. Or that's, the, that's the answer for where the most deadly things live, not yes. where things evolve from. Yes. But okay. after covering Tiger Shark, we know those deadliest things rarely kill people there. They're just... Exactly. Aussies yeah. are tough. They're just like, they, they just shrug them all off, you know? Oh yeah. But I could not believe that songbirds, half the bird species on earth, so Australia, you need to celebrate this. We're going to be pushing it all week. 
all came out of Australia around 30 million years ago. I like love how, it. How That is like my most favorite fact I've found in the last few months, that songbirds came out of Australia. Like that's just oh, amazing, amazing. Just like, oh, I love you're, it. I love, I, you, love how, I love how easily pleased you are. That's why you're such a good podcast partner, <laughs> number just, one. No. You wouldn't think. And I, I don't think – I know, but I don't think we've mentioned yet that Australians, they do have their own red robin. Yeah. Or yellow robins. Too. Yeah, they have everything. They have a little bit yeah. of everything, right? A little bit of – Cool. Like everybody's a little bit Irish in the the U.S. I don't know. Australia's yeah, got a little yeah, bit yeah, of everything. Yeah. yeah. Sure. I I was blown away. I was just like, "Are you kidding me?" And so, songbirds evolved in Australia, and then when those islands started popping up with geological activity near Indonesia, they started hopping, and then they went into Southeast Asia about twenty four million years ago. Then they just spread out all over the earth, and they're on every continent, including. South America. Now, of the two robin species we're covering, the American robin. So the order for all songbirds is passeriformes. So P-A-S-S-E-R-I forms, passeriformes. That's all of songbirds. Now, the American robin is part of the thrushes. So they're the family turdidae. And there's mm-hmm. about 300 species of bird in there. Now, the American robin species name is, I don't know who named it, Turdus. <laughs> Must have I not know. liked them. I had some late night giggles with that one. I was like, like, I was like, John, guess what the robin's called? <laughs> We're such children. Yeah. It must have looked up in the tree and then it like, boop. <laughs> I took an ornithology, bird biology class where I had to memorize all the scientific names. And I don't Ugh. remember anything but the Canadian goose. Uh, but gosh, I I can't, I, I guess I would have I thought of, I should have remembered that one. Turtis I would have made, made a little joke about it. I, don't I know. know. Yeah, it's a cute, it's funny. It's a cute little name. So turtis. But do you see a robin, you little turtis? Now, like Angie said, there's different subspecies. So I don't know why I was thinking of this, but the one down in Florida, the Southern Robin, I just see him playing a banjo while the one out in California playing the electric guitar, the Western Robin. So there you go. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> sounds, sounds about right. Move, move about the similar speeds. Yeah. Yes. The Eastern Robin, the Newfoundland Robin, the Northwestern Robin. And now you have the two that are kind of in Mexico, the San Lu- Lucas Robin, which is like Baja, Mexico, and then the Mexican Robin. Yeah, so, so seven total. Yeah, seven total subspecies. Now, the European robin, like you said, is from a different family. They're not really related to the American robin. So they're still still passeriformes, the same order, because that's all songbirds. But their family is muscicapidae, which is the old world flycatchers. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, that's recent. They used to always put American robins and European robins together. But Mm, it wasn't until, I guess, we got this DNA and this other classification that they've separated them out. Science. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven subspecies, like the Canary Island. And then they have like the southern one goes into Iran, Crimean peninsula the ones that go down to africa so yeah they have seven subspecies too all right another fun fact (laughs) that's why i love this pod can you guess the largest songbird today 
There's no Almost, way you'll know uh, this. I will fall yeah, out of my seat I'm if like, you know this. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know, a canary. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know my birds. Uh, that one bird biology class, It's and now it's coming back to haunt me. <laughs> Maybe some some of our bird nerds are yelling at the, the car Oh, radio. I'm sure, and they should. They should yeah. be They should be. No, podcast, this, no if you don't know birds, you don't know this. There's no way. Okay. There's no okay. way. Yeah, All right, def- the largest songbird flying around today is the common raven. It is a songbird. I didn't know it was a songbird. <laughs> yes, me either. That's what I said. This is this is amazing. This is why we do this pod. That's because fan- I've been wanting to do a raven or a crow yes. for a long time. I'm glad we waited because now we know there's a songbird, and all they could do is crow, right? Rah, whatever. But that's oh, they're songbirds. Yeah. I hear them all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So wow. the common ravis Corvus corax. They might is need to redo largest. that DNA study. I think. <laughs> <laughs> it is a, a a songbird of the order Passerimiformes. So okay, if you say so, Chris. That's what the internet the data tells says me. right now. No, that's okay. what Cornell says. Okay, if Cornell's wrong, I will. I quit. Eat my hat. Yeah, I quit. Yeah, I quit. yeah. Okay, so some cool stuff because we got to get to how they sing, Angie. It's like you said, the, the robins have a tough life out there. Their their average lifespan, and uh, this is for the both American and European was about 13 months or a year, a little bit over a year and a half is what I read for some. Now the European Robins can live up to 19 years, which is pretty dang long Mm -hmm. where I read the American was 13, but almost 14 years. That's, that's pretty good age, but most of them don't survive that long. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Yeah. All right. The next thing I went down besides, Finding out they came out of Australia. And they're related crows. Yeah, ravens or songbirds is, I want to know, how can they be so loud? That Towhee I heard every morning. Even, I mean, even the cute hummingbird, like, was loud. The male looking Mm -hmm. for, they're pretty loud, too. Yeah. But that Towhee was, and that thing could fit in the palm of my hand, was so loud. How do they produce such high vocals angie tell me they have special vocal cords <laughs> all right i'll cover it because <laughs> i drunk that on it the syrinx it's called the syrinx how is that different than the larynx okay so this is, this is i know i'm like so excited about this like i'm a total bird nerd now okay the larynx they do have a larynx you know, we all have larynx. That's what we have. We have vocal cords. That's our voice box, right? Yes. That's okay. how we talk, right? And, and it's up in our throats. Now, where the, the syrinx is under that, and it is actually where the windpipe splits to go into the two lungs. Mm-hmm. And that's where this special organ is. And we know, like, amphibians have a larynx. We have a larynx. Reptiles have a larynx. Birds have a larynx. But only birds have this syrinx and it's just a total they called it an evolutionary novelty it was just it they all all songbirds have this and they all go back to this this ancient ancestor in australia that this evolved and that is how they can they can sing their songs it is it is crazy so this takes back 67 million years this is like the the one ancestor and then it split off in in australia to all the ones we have today 
So like I said, this is located just where it splits the, the windpipe. And there's like special cartilage that formed there. And then it developed rings of muscle that they can oh, okay. use to control to sing. So like tones and volumes. And right. Pitches, yeah. You know, like we form different tones to speak. I don't know all the physiology behind it, but like I'm, you're listening to me now, the way I'm speaking, that is through my larynx. Now, the way they sing is through this, this special vibrations produced by the syrinx. So they have this, the different membranes and, the muscles, it just controls the airflow and then what vibrates this, this self oscillating system that modulates that. So, you know, it's like they're playing an instrument also. Now, some of the fun stuff about it is why do they sing? How do they do this? When do they sing? It is very draining for them. You know, it's like, I, I mean, here's the thing, you know, for people that listen to the podcast, we get done with the podcast. Aren't you kind of tired? I mean, you're, we talk for an hour and a half, two hours. and Yeah, well, yes and no. I'm usually it's a little, a little jazzed up. It's usually, <laughs> it's usually like really, little, really late in the night uh, when we true. get done. And I'm always like, I don't want to go to bed. So I'll, like, I'll call a friend. John's phone asleep. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll like call a friend or something. No, but when you Chris, talk for no, a long time, I know it's but diary. I, was born, I was born to talk, Chris. That's why the podcast is where I'm supposed to be because it's, I love animals and I'm excel at talking. All so, right. Well for birds. Okay. How about singing? Like if you went and sang for a long sure, time. Sure. Singing. Well, yeah. I mean, well, that's yeah. a, a professional singers lose their voices a lot mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Is that why all rock stars are skinny or is that for some other reason? <laughs> mm, that's probably some other reason. <laughs> energetically draining. So it's energetically draining for them. So it, it costs them to sing. So they they really don't do it just to do it. There, there's reasons they do do it. And I think Angie's going to jump in here in a second. That, you know, it, it's mostly males, right? Yeah, Chris, especially with the American Robin, it's... Hmm. The males, the males are the ones that sing. <laughs> so, <me. laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's typically not the females. And the males in North America, they'll begin to sing in the late winter and early spring. Mm. A lot of it's for their courtship, uh, which we'll talk about more when we get to uh, their reproductive behavior. And their the song of the male robin is often described as like a cheery cheer up, cheer up, cheery cheer up. I am mm -hmm. not doing it any justice, uh, <laughs> kind of like my singing just a second ago. <laughs> so let's see if a professional Robin does a better job than me. Well, Chris, I think we know who won that round of Make the Sound. <laughs> <laughs> they win. They win so, so much. Because oh. I don't have that special, what's it no. called, syrinx? Syrinx, yeah, the syrinx, yeah. the special, yeah. I was born with just a larynx and only a moderate ability to hold the tune. So, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just, it, they're beautiful, but that doesn't put you in a cheery, happy mood and make you a little bit jealous of their skill set. Uh, I don't know what will, right? Oh, they're they're just so amazing. I mean, they can they can have two pitches at once. They can control one side of the pharynx or syrinx versus the other. So they can they can like just a tenth of a second they can switch notes, 
and the range is incredible. This thing just gives them things that you would just never, never uh, believe. Now, the reason I thought, <laughs> the reason I thought the Florida or the Eastern Robin would be playing a banjo versus out in California, dude, playing the, the, uh, the rock and roll is because there are Robins that have different dialects based on regions. So So down there in good old Florida, the good old boys, they're Robins sing a little bit different, maybe a little bit slower. Mm -hmm. Just a little bit of twang. A little slower. Their songs are a little slower. Slower. Mm -hmm. I miss the South. I love the South. And versus California. Lemonade on my front porch right now. (laughs) It's so hot. There's nothing else you can do. I just don't miss the mosquitoes. But other than that, I miss I miss the South. But they do. They have regional ac- accents or dialects. And it's just, oh, it's 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 beautiful. Well, now, and, oh, oh, well, yeah, Chris. And and so you're really hitting on a big concept here. I played the song, but mm-hmm. Chris and I will link. But we'll link the Audubon Society to our show notes where. Yes, the male songs are beautiful, but they have a lot of other calls in that. Mm-hmm. They and they have a cluck sound, a tuck, a peak, a chur. And these calls are used as alarm calls, as a way to, if you're a female, a way to attract mates. If you're a little one, a way to call your mom when you're fledging fledgling and you're stuck on the ground. It's a way to notify others in the flock that there is a dog or a predator around. And so it's it's really intense as far as their different vocalizations. I mean, the singing is what separates them, like you said, from a lot of the other birds. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Oh, but even irregardless of the singing, they still have all these other amazing sounds and and American robins are usually one of the first songs you hear in the morning. Yeah. So early bird gets the worm. Uh-huh. A lot of times yeah. that's the robin. And they're often one of the last ones you hear in the evening as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they're just, they just have this full repertoire. And as Chris, Chris did a great job describing the physiology of their vocal box to be able to do that, right? All those oh, different pitches yeah. and and the volume too to attract the female and show mm-hmm. the female. And so I just I just think the way they communicate with each other is just is breathtaking. Oh yeah. And like you said in the morning, I I went down that rabbit hole for a little bit, the dawn chorus they call it. Like why is it more intense? Why do songbirds sing so loudly in the morning? Because that's first thing in the morning. You hear them and they're so loud, so beautiful, and they don't know why. (laughs) I was waiting for it. I'm like, (laughs) he found the answer. I couldn't find the answer. It's like all those things in science. You're like, you go down this rabbit hole, you're like, oh, yeah, why do they sing more in the morning? I mean, some of it is they think the male's defending territory. Mm -hmm. Sounds travel better in the morning atmospheric conditions are better but they still don't know why that is when like almost all the songbirds on earth are just like ah! you know, first thing <laughs> in the morning <laughs> all right before we jump to behavior because they do some really cool stuff uh really quickly i mean the european robins they really like worms seeds fruits insects and other invertebrates but the american robin it's kind of varies, right? I mean, they eat worthworms in the morning. Like you said, early bird gets the worm. And then yeah. fruit in the day. So your poor blueberries. Grubs, caterpillars, yeah. grass, uh, grasshoppers, beetles. I mean, they definitely eat a lot of in- worms, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
in general, researchers think they're probably about 40% invertebrates or bugs, insects, mm -hmm. and about 60% uh, fruits and or berries. So, yeah, robins are known to have a little bit of a sweet tooth, which made them more endearing to my heart as well as <laughs> Me too. I stuffed John's chocolate cake that I made him for his birthday into my mouth <laughs> late at night. I'm like, how bad can it be to eat a half a piece of cake at 11.30 at night, right? Hey, uh, it, not, the answer is it's not good. Who is it eating not a good tons thing. of sweets right now? Like, come on. No, it's crazy. It's hard. Oh, right? we're but, getting uh, tired luckily, of this. Yep. still exercising, so I guess it's uh, at least breaking even. <laughs> but what I found really fascinating about the robins mm -hmm. is that studies have shown that robins will be attracted to lawns that are freshly mowed or where mm -hmm. there's sprinklers. And or if you've like recently turned up your garden, it's like they know that that's a good time to look for worms and grubs. Mm -hmm. So they're smart. And so researchers for the longest time knew that in order to uh, to hunt, right, hunt for these insects mm -hmm. such as earthworms, that robins were using their eyesight and sense of smell, right, and maybe even some like tactile cues. But a recent study, well, I shouldn't say, okay. But this is why I love research. So in 1997, there was a paper published in Animal Behavior, which is one of my favorite journals, of course, mm -hmm. that besides using all of the typical cues of smelling and looking, uh, a researcher demonstrated that for robins, it's really important for them to use their hearing. Because they can actually hear earthworms underground. Wow. So it's okay. not, yeah. So it's not just the okay. seeing the worm pop up after the rain and start crawling. Right. It's being able to hunt them underground based on subtle sounds that the worm is making. And so, and the way that they demonstrate this is that the, the robin will actually like tilt its head mm -hmm. and cock its head to the left or the right and basically be able to identify these earthworms underground. That's so crazy. I love science. It's crazy. It's so cool, they, right? Yeah. It's crazy. They can hear that. Yeah. And then Chris, American Robins, and you're probably going to recognize this when I say it, but they're known for this really cool behavior on the ground of running and stopping. They run and run, stop, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. run and run, stop. And so what this behavior researchers think, and so and the reason researchers think that they're doing this behavior is to hunt, basically. So pretty cool stuff. There's a lot more to them besides that big, beautiful red breast, although that's uh, um, a fun thing to look at. Uh, and then yeah. lastly, just for your kicks and giggles, uh, robins have been known as one of the few species of birds in North America that will once in a while eat too many fermented berries. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> and anybody who's had too much fermented anything, which I definitely during the past uh, stay-at-home <laughs> order. Months, three months, four months. <laughs> uh, can vouch for is, yeah. yes, it's uh, Fun Times USA. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But no, it's, uh, it's, it's a phenomenon that can happen once in a while if uh, – up, up, up in North, I think in, uh, in 2008. There, yeah, oh, Minnesota. Uh, in okay, 2018, close. there was a report in Minnesota and stuff like that. So okay. some researchers think it's the berries. Some researchers think it's that they, they, it's not the fermentation in the berries making them act a little off or fly mm -hmm. into things, unfortunately. It's uh, 
that their crop is full because they eat too much. So there's kind of these two uh, hypotheses of what's going on. And so, but yeah, so always just, if you see a little bird wobbling around, just uh, they say to perhaps if it's safe, collect them up, put them in a a box, a dark box until they, they, um, uh, the drunk tank until they sober up a little bit. (laughs) Drunk tank. Okay. All right. What other behaviors do these things do? (laughs) Robins are amazing. They're busy during the day, so they're a fun one for us birders out there Mm -hmm. because you can usually go out anytime during the day and see them and hear Mm -hmm. them. And Chris, the other interesting thing that I learned about American robins is they can engage in mobbing behavior. Mm -hmm. And if you're not familiar with what that is, the mobbing behavior, it includes a lot of vocalization or calls and then also aerial swoops to even physically attack a predator. And so American robins do it. And I was always familiar that like crows and jays will do this and mockingbirds. Mm -hmm. It has been observed in American robins. And researchers always thought it was just to basically get rid of the predator or to scare the predator off. And I've seen, I don't know which bird species it was. It might have been, it might have been a jay, um, but mob small dogs Mm -hmm. like, or a cat. You know, mm-hmm. and they just basically swoop in, smack them on the butt, bite them on the butt, tap them on the butt, <laughs> yeah, scare, scare them, them basically. Scare them, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Especially dogs are pretty easy. And then, yeah. you know, get them out of there. And so, but researchers now think that it might be in a way, it might be a way for the males to show off some of their strength and impress potential mates. Like, watch, okay. watch me, watch what I can do. I'm yeah, strong yeah. and safe and all of that. So, Pretty cool uh, stuff if you've ever seen the mobbing. Uh, I have seen mobbing. It's just, a, yeah, it's it's interesting. You see the birds way up in the air and you're like, what is going on? And they're just like, yeah. these are the smaller ones going after the big ones. Like, get away, get away. So, yeah. Exactly. Well, and then robins have been known to do it to blue jays as well. Like, you know, get out of here. And lastly, Chris, I think the an important behavior to cover about robins, European, American robins mm-hmm. in general, is that a lot of them migrate. Yeah. And they will travel far, far distances. And so migration to me is just something that's super fascinating. It's way beyond my repertoire of understanding how how they do it, right? Mm -hmm. As far as where do they know their wintering grounds are or their breeding grounds. It's just incredible. But what researchers have shown is the distance which robins migrate depends on where they're from initially. So some that have been tagged up in Alaska travel a lot further south mm-hmm. in the wintertime than those that are tagged in Massachusetts. Makes so sense. Makes yeah, sense. exactly. Like if it's really cold, you want to get away from the cold. If it's kind of mm-hmm. mild, then you know, you may not travel as far. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but how all that's determined, once again, is just still, it's just super fascinating that they it's an instinct. Right. Well, yeah. When we cover, there's some really incredible migratory species. I think that will be like the science rabbit hole. Yeah, I didn't go down down that rabbit hole. I was like, whoa, they blow my mind. That's a big one. There's going to be like some Arctic goose or Canadian geese or something we'll cover that goes way crazy migratory routes. Yeah, how they know the direction. And I Mm -hmm. mean, is it whether it's magnetic field or there's all these other Mm -hmm. theories? It's just super phenomenal. And I know, think of us humans, right? Like if I didn't have my GPS on my phone, I'd be 
driving around in hexagons. <laughs> How do we do it in the early days of the phones, Angie? Oh my gosh. Well, I had a road atlas. I actually still yes, really we like do. maps. But <laughs> yeah, maps, so yeah. uh but in general, American robins are pretty social birds. During the winter, they kind of like to gather around and probably, you know, talk about the weather and how they're they're glad that they are where they are in the wintertime. And they'll often assemble in large flocks in the evening and they'll often hang out and roost together in trees. And then during the day, they're active during the day when it's time to eat their seeds or go look for insects. They'll break up into little smaller groups to go have their lunch with or brunch or whatever. Now, then in the spring to summertime, when they're in their summer grounds or the breeding grounds, uh, they're not as social. They're kind of like mm. us right now, right? Mm. We're not as social. Most yeah, of no, us are yeah, yeah. Uh, staying away from one another, unfortunately. But the reason for this with the American robin is it becomes more territorial, especially males, because it becomes breeding season. Right. And right. they're they want to stick with their mate and just raise their little family and protect their little family. It reminds me of that little Towie just like screaming at the top of his lungs. So how does he attract a mate, I guess, and then start, you know, nesting, all that fun stuff. And yes, Chris, that's all part of their courtship. These loud carolings, singing high-pitched songs. And once they attract the female, there's other really fun behaviors that they do. So the female is enticed with their beautiful song. And then a lot of times they'll engage in symbolic feeding where the male will often feed the female in the nest. I can go oh, okay. that. Who's ever said, <laughs> who's ever said no to breakfast in bed? Not this lady, no, yeah. right? Yeah. A little and then, bit, some worms, you know, a little, mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> a little fermented if, fruit. Okay, if I don't have away. to get up for it, bring that fermented berries, <laughs> There you go. There protein, go. insects, whatever. Okay. Uh, you and, and Mallory, also, you and Mallory. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. 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 She's my girl. Uh, yeah. And then they also engage in ceremonial gaping. And so the gaping behavior is basically kind of what it sounds like. They'll just go he- beak to beak, head to head, beak to beak, and then they open their mouths. And some have described it in certain subspecies as either like a yawn mm-hmm. or it's been described too, which I kind of get giggle out of this one, uh, as, the male, as the male begging to the female, kind of like a baby okay. bird would. Yeah, baby okay, bird okay, would. Yeah. So yeah, they do a lot of uh, charming things mm-hmm. if you're uh, a birder and you can be lucky enough to, to catch some of these cool little conspicuous behaviors. And this pair bond that males and females form will begin usually when they get to their summer range, so up north. Uh, and the breeding season is thought of between April and July. So so if you're in North America and we're like in the you know in the thick of it right now, and uh, so we'll be looking out for fledglings and things like that. And once male and female do get together, they uh, the female will lay anywhere from three to five eggs, and of course these are the no- notorious blue eggs that I mentioned earlier on in the podcast. So why are they blue? Ah, yes, the million dollar question. Yes, yes. Okay, I'm super excited to talk about this. So, mm-hmm. uh, what I found out researching for this podcast was that robins are not the only birds that lay blue eggs. Blackbirds, ironically enough, can do it. Starlings, blue jays, other thrushes. So it's somewhat common in the songbird arena. And it's really cool. The way that they get the blue-colored eggs is 
The blue pigment develops the last five hours before the egg is actually comes out. And it's a derivative of Billy Veridin, which is a pigment, and it goes on the outer part of the eggshell. And Billy Veridin is a breakdown of hemoglobin. Okay. So that gives it the blue blue for anybody. Yeah. yeah. Pretty physiology is just fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like dying Easter eggs at the Totally. Exactly. Crazy, right? Uh, So just as we've kind of mentioned earlier on the podcast, researchers don't know exactly why they're blue, right? What's the benefit? It's not camouflage because they stick Mm -hmm. out like a sore thumb, even though they're up in the trees. So there's two running hypotheses. One is from a 2012 study with Bob Montgomery and his group. And he did these cool experiments where he changed up the egg colors and put some lighter blue and some darker blue. And what that group found is that the bluer the egg might be a sign of a stronger female because it does take energy to color yeah. the egg, right? Yeah, makes sense. This okay. derivative of hemoglobin, mm-hmm. right? And so then in general, this might be a sign of a stronger baby. In this experiment, the researchers found that a male would feed a baby that was thought to be a darker blue eggshell than a lighter blue eggshell. He, The male would feed that baby two times more than a baby that came from a lighter colored shell. Mm, okay. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah there might be some kind of instinct going on mm. there. And then in 2016, researchers also investigated a hypothesis that the blue actually helps protect the eggs up in the tree from some UV radiation. Because with that being said, eggs are typically incubated by the females only with Amer- in American robins for about 14 days before they hatch. So, but yeah, so those are some of the running hypotheses yeah. for the blue oh, eggs. Cool. All I know as a kid is I love to collect you them. You love collecting them. Yeah, they're, be- they're so pretty. They're so pretty. And so as an adult, I don't have the answer of why they're blue, unfortunately, okay. 100%. But there's probably some selection-based uh, mm-hmm. things going on there. And when the chicks do hatch, uh, they're all trishal, which means they're naked and their eyes are closed and they're obviously super dependent on their mom. And, uh, and she'll take good care of them. But even though they don't have many feathers and their eyes are closed, uh, baby birds chirp, 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 chirp to their mom and dad for food. So both, we got some good daddy robins here, Chris. Of course, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, birds are great. Both the adult male and the female actively participate in feeding the chicks. And then, of course, the fledged chicks um, until they begin to forage on their own. And so... The little baby birds, once their feathers come in and their eyes open, usually about two weeks after they've hatched, they will leave the nest and they all do it about a day or two apart from each other. And they fledge for a couple of days, which to me, I just had an incident where I found a fledging fledgling on the ground, luckily before my dog did. Mm-hmm. She was running around the park like a mad woman, like she does, which is fine because she listens to me. <laughs> but uh, she was in this area, and then I saw this little thing moving on the ground, and I, you know, I put her on her leash and put her away and investigated it. Called John. I was like, John, what do I do? And he was like, <laughs> Angie. He's like. He's like, fledglings are on the ground for one to three days. You know, he has all the answers. Yeah. And uh, 
So yeah, I didn't realize that for a lot of fledglings, they spend, you know, they don't just like jump out of the nest and learn how to fly. Right. It's not like it's It instant, takes yeah. days. It's like a yeah. learn. I mean, it's instinctual, but it's learned. I tried to have this whole conversation with Xander. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It was tough. I, I don't know if it worked out right. But yeah, it's like <laughs> they, they know that they need to fly, but they don't instantly take off. And so they do spend right. a lot of time on the ground. But because we were doing preparing for this podcast, and uh, one of the reasons why I'm so glad we're, we were covering songbirds is I w- it was dusk. So I took all these videos of the fledgling to try to identify it. And then I sat back and I got out of its way because, you, you know, mm-hmm. you don't want to get too much in their business. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, the parent came around and the parent kept coming, swooping down from the trees. I don't know if it's the male or the female. Mm-hmm. And they were vocalizing back and forth to each other. It was just this whole thing. I caught it on video, but it, it's too dark. So it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. really come out. Yeah. And I watched probably for 15 or 20 minutes about the amazing parental care that was going into this poor little fledgling on the ground. And so, Chris, understanding numbers uh, with robins or probably songbirds in general, only about 40% survive class fledging because they're on the ground and they're, it's tough. you know, they're yeah, in tough. the open for the most part. But, boy, this parent was doing its job, and I was able mm-hmm. to snap a picture, two blurry bad pictures in the dusk bad lighting. Uh, and I went home and I, the bird nerd in me came out because this was some of the first like parental behavior I'd seen up and close. And I was able to identify the bird, Chris, as a brown crested flycatcher. Beautiful bird with kind of a tough, a small tuff on its head, a yellow Mm -hmm. chest. Um, the fledgling just looks like a brown spotted thing. So that didn't get any help. It was, it was the parent that really, uh, that really tipped me off, but it was super fun. And I got to cross that one off the list and yeah, anyway, so, uh, it, you know, it's a lot, it's definitely a a lot of fun. And so, Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of parental care and Robins in general become mature after about a year and, uh, they'll repeat the whole process over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, I mean, robins are doing okay. I mean, we talked about 3 billion birds less in North America, but robins at least are, are stable, least concerned, the Europeans and the American robins. So they're doing okay. Now, so I know there's a million bird organizations, but were there any specific that you wanted to highlight this week? Well, yeah, we always talk about the Audubon Society and then Cornell University. Those are a lot of uh, the websites. Those are a lot of great websites to go to for anything bird-related, a lot of scientific-based uh, knowledge on there. But because of my bird-watching and bird-nerding and wanting to get everybody listening to this podcast somewhat involved, you don't have to be totally mm-hmm. committed, mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to give a big shout-out to the American Birding Association okay. that has a lot of information on their website and we'll put uh, we'll put everything up on our show notes. And then on Facebook, there's tons of fun groups to follow. So if you're a little bit more experienced, there's a group, or just if you just love beautiful pictures of birds, like you mentioned the Bird of Paradise earlier on, Chris, or Peacock or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Bird watching on Facebook is a fun group that you can like and you're you will thank me in your newsfeed. If you're newer to bird watching, which I somewhat fall in that category, there's some fun groups on Facebook called Bird Watching for Beginners, and then another one called What's This Bird? Okay. And it's, yeah, and it's one of yeah. these sites where I probably could have put my really low quality f- 
photos up and somebody on, yeah. would have been able to help me. And so that's a great one if you're just getting started. And if you can, this is a great time of year. We're all, a lot of us are at home and we're looking out our windows more or we're mm-hmm. just walking around our ha- house. So go go explore and see if you can identify even just one bird. Um, for me, it was a real nice treat to see that that uh, flycatcher because it's one I, I, I don't normally see. There's a lot of cardinals around my house and, of course, um, blue jays. But, um, yeah, it's fun, to, yeah. it's fun to get out there and do the new you stuff. Start identifying them and seeing them. Especially like, to oh, the cell phones it. now because you can snap yeah. even not great photos. And so, yeah, give it a shot. It's super fun. And then, yeah, and then it makes yeah. you more passionate too. And then, of course, then I had to check out the song that the mom right, and – or the, I shouldn't the say make. the mom. That the, it yeah. might have been the dad. That the yeah. parent and the offspring were doing – and sure enough, it matched. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's where the the nerd really starts to come out. <laughs> kick in, kick in. Yeah. Well, just it. to just to leave some conservation tips, the like we said, the neonicotinoids, I've got a list of pesticides, at least in North America. So I will put that on there. They are starting to regulate it. And we know that, you know, the American Bird Conservancy has really helped persuade retailers to stop carrying these neonics. So, you know, you're starting to see a lot less of them, but they're still there. So I will put the list on the show notes. And then quickly, I just wanted to, you know, how do you attract these birds to your backyard? So what are some of the things you can feed them? You know, you can put out a bird feeder. Make sure if you have cats or anything, you put bird feeders up high, please. You know, we don't want to be feeding Keep your the cats. Keep the cats indoors. Yeah, there you go. That would works be too. the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So for the winter, things that you could offer birds is uh, sunflower seeds. You know, they're very good. They're easy to get at. The, they say the black oil ones are the best. Uh, white proso millet, millet seeds, peanuts. You can offer peanuts. Uh, sweet cakes or suet cakes, S-U-E-T. Yeah, so fat. you can find mm-hmm. those. Yeah. The Niger seeds or cracked corn is also good. So... Well, you can offer some of the birds in your backyard. In the spring, you can offer fruit. Yeah. Then things like crushed eggshells, nesting materials such as human hair, dog hair, which is a big one. Nice. You know, bits of string or yarn or cloth. They'll you lay that out and they'll pick it up and use it to nest. And then, you know, and then summer you can put out nectar feeders for hummingbirds for like us that are lucky enough in the North America that have them or South America. And then in autumn, again, peanuts, peanut butter, sweet cakes, things like that, millet are, are good things. And you can get like songbird feed at a store, which is good. Things like just plain old bread is generally not good for birds. It just doesn't have much nutrients in it. Moldy bread can kill them. Don't give them chocolate. That's just for us. That's for me late night in the fridge. Yeah. And table scraps are not good for birds, but you can't attract mice or rats or if you, if you want to feed them. So anyways, that is it for this week. Love songbirds. Amazing, amazing animals. And uh, stay tuned for next week. We'll have another amazing species. 